It's now my privilege to introduce to you Patrick Webb, who serves as associate pastor at Colleyville Presbyterian Church. And he and his wife, Rachel, and their two boys are here with us today. Patrick was born and raised in Houston. Uh, he and his wife met when they were both students at TCU. They have been married for 10 years and have two little boys. He conducted part of his theological training at Redeemer Seminary in Dallas and completed his training at Duke Divinity School in Durham, North Carolina, where he earned his MDiv degree. He has served in various churches along the way and has also served as a minister in Young Life in Fort Worth. Patrick, we're so glad to have you here this morning. Thanks, Jim. All right, well, good morning, Redeemer. How is everybody? I come um, with greetings and glad tidings and the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus from Colleyville Presbyterian to you, from your brothers and sisters there. I know uh, many of you know people at Colleyville, and they know you, and uh, they're happy to have me here. I'm happy to be here and delighted to worship with you this morning. So thank you for your hospitality and hosting me and my family on this second Sunday of Lent. Uh, I think let's just get right to it. If you uh, have a Bible this morning, you can turn to Psalm 134. That is the word that God has for us this morning. It should also be print or um, put up here, I'm told, in case you don't have a Bible. And we'll read it together, and then I will pray for us. Psalm 134, a song of ascents. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Deliver, lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. Would you pray with me? Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. So I first learned to pray to God at nighttime, just before bed. We would always go into my father's room and he would kneel beside my sister and I, beside his bed. <clears throat> Sometimes, especially when we were younger, we would stand up so that we could lean our elbows on the top of the mattress because that was the only way we could do it and lean just to be comfortable my father was a lapsed Catholic, and he would guide us through reciting the Lord's Prayer and then the Hail Mary, and then we would take turns calling out family members that we wanted God to bless. You know, God bless mom, God bless dad, God bless Papa Jean. And I never, I've never asked him why we did it this way, um, but I, I wonder in part that part of the reason is because that is the way that his mother taught him. By his bed when he was a boy. 
As I look back on it, in fact, a lot of the most formative and memorable encounters that I've had with God have happened at night, actually. When I was in middle school, I first prayed the sinner's prayer at night on the top of my bunk bed at summer camp, kneeling there also and giving my heart to Jesus. When I was in high school, it was at night, staring up into the starry sky at Young Life Camp that I first felt an internal call to ministry. I can still feel my hands and knees on the cold tile floor of the bathroom in my college dorm one night as I cried out in a desperate whisper from God to save me from feeling so helpless and depressed. And it was most often at night that I would walk out onto the little wooden porch in the back of this quaint yellow house in South Fort Worth, and I would write love letters to Rachel. Do you have moments like that in your own story? Have you ever had that moment like Jacob where you were wrestling with God against in the night? Like Job, have you ever had to lay bare your pain and loneliness to God in the quiet of the night? Have you ever hoped all night that God would make the pass, would, would let the cup pass from you like Jesus when he was in the night? Have you ever wanted to have a moment like that but haven't been able to or wondered if it was even still possible to have an experience like that? Well, Psalm 134 is a psalm about praying and worshiping in the night. And it says that not only is it still possible to experience God like that, but that prayer and worship in the night is actually central to the Christian experience. It is so central to the Christian experience, in fact, that Psalm 134 declares that there is a blessing to participate in when we do it. Did you know that there are traditionally two times a year when Christians gather at night to worship God? Anyone know where they are? Christmas Eve and Holy Week. Our church usually meets on Christmas Eve and Monday Thursday and Good Friday, and some churches hold a vigil on Holy Saturday as well. The moments that commemorate the incarnation and crucifixion The two central experiences of Jesus' humanity, both his birth and his death, are the days when we gather at night to worship him. So it seems that in the night, where our encounter with God at least feels like death and rebirth, there is a deep and intimate knowledge of Jesus and of ourselves, of our own humanity, that we are meant to discover there. There is, in fact, I believe, a love to be revealed there. And there is a blessing to participate in. Because you cannot tell the whole story of the gospel without the night. Psalm 134 is the last in a unique collection of psalms within the Psalter called the Psalms of Ascent or the Pilgrim Psalms. 
And the Psalter names them this way, we believe, because Israel looks to have sung these psalms while journeying back and forth to Jerusalem three times a year to celebrate the three pilgrimage festivals, Passover, Pentecost, and the Tabernacles. I want you to imagine with me for a moment what this journey might have been like for these people. I want you to imagine the people of Israel packing their things, gathering their children. I want you to imagine them having to decide how much food they're going to bring and who's going to watch grandpa on the way to make sure that he doesn't hurt himself. How fast are they going to need to travel across what is now Israel and Syria and Jordan and Lebanon to get there in time? And more importantly, how are they going to make sure to keep themselves safe along the way? In other words, as you imagine them, I want you to imagine them as human, not as characters, but as real people. It would be fair to imagine, I think, that as foreign as much of their life is to us, and it is that, that most of the human things about them are somehow rather familiar to us. There is no reason to believe that they are somehow more full of virtue and resolve and piety than the rest of us when we imagine them coming to the temple. Surely, there are many more reasons in life and in the Scriptures themselves to think that they are just as weak and confused and insecure and needy as we all are and can be. Some of us more and some of us less so, of course. But I think it is fair to believe that all of them suffer from wounds that are not of their own making that all of them carry undue burdens that are too heavy for them to shoulder by themselves, and that all of them have doubts about the quality of their life that aren't so different than yours and mine. And yet, because we can imagine them as deeply human, we can also expect that many of them probably have a little hope in their hearts as well. They're not downcast or downtrodden. They're not especially despairing. They're just, they're just regular people. And they know the stories that God, their God, the God of Israel, is not made with human hands. He is more than just elaborate rituals and well-ordered prayers. He, in fact, is the one that raised their people out of Egypt. He delivered them out of slavery He is their maker and their helper and their salvation. And they are going along this way because he has invited them to do it. Come, he says, and bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord. And so whether they have to be or whether they want to be, Israel is reminded as they sing their pilgrim songs that it is God, their God, that has in fact called them into worship because they have, by His grace and love, been set apart for this very calling, this very vocation to worship the Lord in His holy temple. They are the only ones to do this at this point. 
And this is precisely the reason that God elected Abraham and blessed him so that he might and his people might be a blessing to the world in and through their worship. Blessing is the inheritance and the hope of the people of God, and it always has been. And it is only God's unending mercy and love that has made it possible. And so on this day, their faith is not some idea. It is not an assent to certain propositional truths. It is simply having the faith to get up and raise themselves up and make the journey again and again and again even if they don't quite know what's going to happen or they aren't quite sure that they want to be there. And finally, they arrive. You can see them, a company of Hebrews joined in the temple for this pilgrim feast. They're lifting up their hands to the holy place and blessing the Lord, verse 2 tells us. Can you see them with their bodies kneeling down on the ground and their eyes closed, but their hands and their eyes are lifted high in hope and faith that God will indeed bless them. We know very little about the details of their worship other than this remark that This final gathering is taking place at night. Perhaps as it's the end of the Psalms of Ascent, maybe we can imagine the end of the feast. And they're all about to go back on this journey. And they're wondering what's going to happen to them as they leave. We've alluded to this a little bit. Of course, the night connotes a heightened sense of fear, maybe danger, Certainly vulnerability, an oddness, maybe even a doubt that you might expect when you leave and go back in that way, wondering, is God really going to bless me? Am I really going to be able to make it? Can I really go back and do and live my life again? But the night connotes more than that also. In in the heightened sense of the night, the enchantment of the night, if I can call it that, It doesn't always have to imply a negative or malevolent force. At least in the Christian story, you can be vulnerable to the mysteries and the principalities and the powers of God and the world and the night and experience a kind of fullness instead of fear. Love, even in suffering. The 16th century Spanish mystic St. John of the Cross is most well known for coining the phrase, the dark night of the soul. Have you heard this before? I thought you might. The dark night of the soul most often describes an intense experience of toil spiritually, this suffering that one endures. And to a certain extent, this is true. 
But it's important to know and to realize that the suffering and the turmoil itself is not in and of itself the most important or meaningful thing about the dark night for St. John of the Cross. It's not like an extra special hard night. The most meaningful thing about the dark night is that it is a spiritual crisis that both imitates and participates in the crisis of the cross of Jesus Christ. For St. John of the Cross, the dark night of the soul evokes the shadow of Gethsemane and the horror of Calvary in our lives, where a person experiences such nearness to Jesus that they lose themselves as Jesus lost himself and are so emptied as Jesus was emptied that their only hope For redemption in the night is that the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead would fill them up for new life. And this is why the dark night is central to the Christian experience. Because it is central to the experience of Jesus Christ. Indeed, it lies at the very heart of of the gospel narrative. And during Holy Week and the Tenebrae service on Good Friday and the Vigil on Holy Saturday, it lies at the very heart of our worship leading up to Easter. And there is in these services a set of practices and habits that are meant to reveal to us and so train our hearts to see and to know in the passion of Jesus Christ how to live in a world where nobody gets out of life alive. Practices like patiently white lighting a candle instead of cursing the darkness. To be a human being is to experience inevitably the undeniable wreckage of death, our own death, and often the deaths of those that we love. There is illness that we do not have the power to cure, and people we love suffer from it. There are relationships that we do not have the ability to repair, even though we wish that we did. There is brokenness that we do not know how to heal that is not our fault. There is injustice that we cannot make right, and there is oppression that we cannot undo any more than we can take Jesus off the cross and pardon him for his innocence. Conflict and crisis are central to human life, and they are central to the gospel. And yet, and yet, there is in these stories, and in our worship, and in our gathering, and in these practices, an intimacy and a beauty that happens through those that walk the journey towards God in hope that death is not the end of the story. It is, as far as I'm concerned, the only answer to evil in the world.
is people that walk in hope like that. These fearful, vulnerable, doubtful, exhausted, broken sinners bent down in the night with their hands raised in the fullness of humanity and in their, with their hearts of their sleeves are by faith trying to hold together in an unsentimental way the devastations of our lives with the mercy and holiness of God, believing that God is holding them together. And as they do it, they are like the prostitute that falls at Jesus' feet and does not say anything but weeps and wipes his feet with her tears. They are like the paralytic on the mat with nothing left to do or say but to get as close to God as possible. They are trying to learn what it is like to sit in the Garden of Gethsemane and say, for real, not my will, but your will be done. When we do this, friends, when people do this, it is what it looks like to be poor and mournful and meek and hungry and thirsty for righteousness. And do you know what Jesus calls people like that? He calls them blessed. He calls them beautiful. Jesus calls them blessed. And they are blessed because it is in places and postures like this where the poor and the persecuted behold a glimpse of the kingdom of God and they surely show it forth to the world. Or they though they are troubled, find sweet comfort in a way that just does not make sense. But man is so attractive. Or they taste a righteousness that is nothing less than real humility. And it is not a put-on, and it is not piousness. They are the pure at heart who see God not only with their eyes closed, but in the people sitting next to them. They are the peacemakers receiving their inheritance as the sons and daughters of God. They are blessed because they have become the people who truly believe despite their doubts and who show the world despite their sin that it is out of ugliness that God forgives us. It is out of guilt and shame that God forgives us. It is out of the ruinness of our brokenness that God makes us whole. This is what God does when he says his ser- sends his servant Jesus to die for us. Where we are afraid to suffer and die, Jesus is courageous. Where we are doubtful, Jesus is faithful. Where we are weak, Jesus is strong. Where we are broken, Jesus is resurrected. And we are empty and undeserving, Jesus is gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love. God in Jesus Christ makes himself human and he braves the darkness of the night so that when we get there, and we will get there, we will not be left alone. But we will find him there. And he will raise us up 
with him. And so because of Jesus, in your deepest crisis, and your greatest time of need, you do not have to hold it all together, okay? You do not have to make everything right all by yourself. You do not have to know what to do next. You do not have to figure out how to keep yourself alive. You do not have to prove to God or anyone else that you are holy enough. All we are asked to do is to accept our calling as Christians and to receive the invitation and to take the journey of faith step by step and day by day together. Come and bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who stand by night in the house of the Lord, even in the house of the Lord your God, trusting that the Lord will indeed bless us in return. That, friends, is the work of a lifetime. Blessing is a complicated word. The evidence of true blessing is not that we no longer need God because He has given us everything that we need and that we ask for. True blessing is Jesus holding you in the dark of the night and it scaring you because you have been invited to discover just how miraculous and exhilarating and confounding faith and grace really are. Friends, life is too hard to have a boring Christianity. True blessing is when even in sickness and death, in loneliness and trauma, amidst oppression and injustice, there is still beauty to be found. There is truth to be told and there is a good life to live full of grace and love and hope and joy, the kind of life that only God could make possible. The God who blesses us in the night is, as the psalmist says in the end, the maker of heaven and earth. And that means that the world and everything in it belongs to God. God made it. And so he cares for it, and he keeps it, and in him all things hold together, and not just the good things, or the easy things, or the pretty things, but the harsh things, and the prickly things, and the shameful things in this world all hold together in Jesus Christ. Now, you may be wondering, that sounds like a lot. And also, like, really great. And I get it. Like, I see heads going like this. But also, I'm not exactly sure what that looks like or feels like. Or if it is real the way that it sounds like it's real right now. And I get that. I really do. The Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor makes the argument that 
Over the last 500 years, Western culture, and this includes the church, has more or less rid the world of mysteries and principalities and powers. It's not just that it's acceptable to doubt that God could be present with us in the world or that could make this kind of thing possible. It's downright unreasonable to suggest it. In the secular age in which we all live, we are all, all of us, essentially trained to protect ourselves instinctually from these kinds of forces in the night for fear that we might be in danger and that they might hurt us. Even though, ever since we have done that, we have increasingly found ourselves feeling more empty and lonely in the world than ever before. But that is what makes me praying for the first time 30 years ago with my family so remarkable and significant. Because without ever knowing it, my father invited us into a profoundly countercultural act that he did not understand was happening. And we don't talk about prayer this way or even bedtime prayers, but I'm telling you, it is a profoundly meaningful act. My dad resisted the instinct to push against the night, and he not only opened up himself, but he opened all of us, the rest of us, my sister and I, to hear God's voice, to believe that maybe such a thing is real. That just as his mother had showed him, the world really is enchanted. That all things really do live and move and have their being in God. That that is what is most real about our life. But the thing is, is that it wasn't always that way. My dad resisted the night. He resisted going back to church for a long time. In fact, the whole time that my parents were married. But then they got divorced. And our family broke apart. And he didn't know what to do. I mean, none of us knew what to do. Some of you know this feeling. We were all in our own way, sleepless at night, angry and sad and powerless. But one day, my dad went to lunch with a friend, and the friend could see it on his face, and he invited him to Bible study, and then he went to church, and then all of a sudden, there's a little kid in kindergarten and first grade sitting by the bed learning the Lord's Prayer for the first time. And there are few things, right? More beautiful and lovely and gracious and merciful than that. We didn't do that, y'all, because we had it all together and we were trying to be good and my dad had any idea what to do. We did that because everything had fallen apart and we needed to be saved 
And we thought, well, we'll see. And maybe that's you this morning. And I don't know what it is, but God knows what it is. And the thing about faith is you don't get to plan it. And it's not just about believing. It is a life that we live with God. It is a journey that we take where we hope that we can become a people who can sing the doxology every week, no matter what happens. And I don't know what that necessarily means for you or what it necessarily looks like for you, but I do know that you are here. And that is something. Because everybody's got a reason to be here. And I don't have to know what it is. God knows what it is. But I can testify to you now that I have two kids. That two years ago, in the teeth of the pandemic, when like everything felt like it was falling apart, right? And we were having a baby in the middle of all of it, having no idea what to do. Our church started meeting on Zoom every day to pray the morning office in the Book of Common Prayer. And so one day, we decided that we were going to change our nighttime routine with the kids because this was really good for us, and we really loved it. So we were going to pray Compline, which is the bedtime service in the Book of Common Prayer. It takes between five and ten minutes to get through. And we had done it at a couple things and... Well, there's a psalm in the middle of Compline. You know what it is? It's Psalm 134. Most nights, over the last two years, after dinner and bath and PJs and story, we pray Psalm 134 as a family. We pray it on good days. We pray it on bad days. We pray it when we're angry. We pray it when we're thankful. We pray it when we're exhausted. We pray it all the time. And my kids know it. And you know what? It is a blessing. It really is. And I wouldn't have been able to told you how or why when we started, but I can tell you now that it is. And you know why? Because they will never forget that God was with them. And you know how I know that? Because I never did. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are with us in the deepest recesses of our hearts. We pray that you would raise us up in the hope of new and everlasting life. To the glory of your name. Amen.